Guys, good evening. Thank you so much for taking time out to be here. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Donovan, part of the leadership team here in, in uh, Common Ground, Constantiaberg. Um, are we streaming yet? We are streaming. So welcome to you guys that are online. Um, so you guys know last week, this uh, evening happened in South Penn. They had some streaming issues. So we've got some guys from over the hill uh, joining us from South Penn. So welcome to you guys from the valley. And uh, I know guys will be watching the recording. So if you're live or watching it later, great to have you with us. Um, I wanna get straight into tonight because there's a whole lot there. And I realize um, I'm gonna be handing over to Luke in just a moment. Luke's gonna be sharing with us tonight. And uh, so stoked that Luke's here. He moved house today. <laughs> and I think they're still busy. <laughs> They're still busy moving. So I'm gonna pray for Luke and then he's gonna come up and we're gonna crack on. So Father God, thank you for this opportunity we have to be together. And that we just acknowledge your presence with us, that you're here, that you're amongst us. We pray you open our hearts, you open our minds uh, to receive uh, what you've got for us tonight, God. Give us understanding. Pray for Luke, God. Thank you for his faithfulness in being here. We pray for a dose of your spirit on him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Amen. Welcome, Luke. Over to you, Vance. Thanks so much, Donnie. It's true, we moved home um, today. And if you know anything about me, um, I'm a hands-on guy. So I was uh, massively involved in that process. I have got a cap on because um, at about... 22-7 when I realized I've got to shower because I'm so smelly, um, I couldn't find the shampoo. And so I'm only not smelling because the previous owners of the house left a bar of soap in the shower. So that soap was used on other people's bodies whom I don't know. And I am cleaner because of it. Now you know. Um, yes, thanks guys. Um, this is true. Um, my name's Luke, if I haven't met you, um, yeah, that's who I am. I live, uh, Donnie's already offended all the guys in South Penn by calling them over the hill. Um, but um, I, I live over the mountain in Fishhook, and it's a privilege to share with you, especially as we, as we unpack such an important topic and such a, a, a subject that's so part of our day and part of our lives as well. Really, it is a privilege to share with you today. I wanna warn you on the front end, I'm, we're gonna talk long. Um, we're doing this on Wednesday night, not because we wanna avoid a Sunday morning, but because sometimes it's better to drive from Fishhook to Stellenbosch via Bloemfontein to take everybody with you, rather than go straight there and lose a couple along the way, right? And so, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the idea. I'm very aware as I talk about Jesus and same-sex attraction that I am a straight white male. That's who I am. I've only got what I've got. But I'm ashamed, thank you. <laughs> And, uh, but I'm a pastor and I'm trusting that as best I can, my pastor's heart would come through. I'm not a professor. I wanna say that on the front end. Um, and so I'm gonna draw from minds that are better than my own. Um, I'm drawing from resources uh, way outside of myself. I'm gonna list a few of them. Rebecca, Re Rebecca McLaughlin, a fantastic author. Read what she writes about the subject we're looking at today. She herself is a same-sex attracted lady who is married to her husband, has, uh, has kids, and she writes about her story as well. Um, I'm, I'm drawing from Sam Albury, um, who, who wrote, Is God Anti-Gay? 
He's a same-sex attracted man who's a pastor in the States, a phenomenal, phenomenal man and a Christ follower. I'm drawing from John Mark Homer from Bridgetown. A book that I recommended on Sunday was Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. If you haven't read it, you must please read it. She, she, it's just a brilliant book and it's a message that's missing from our day, well-researched, well it's biblical, it's contextual. She draws from, from um, professionals in different spheres as well. It really is brilliant. But primarily today, I wanna say I'm drawing from a, a man named John Tyson. He did a talk in the States and that largely has shaped the talk that I'm gonna be sharing from tonight. Um, why John Tyson? Because other books I've written, uh, I've read, sorry, um, take way too long or way too little to do what we're gonna do tonight. And so he just seems to get it exactly right and that was really helpful for me. I wanna say on the front end, I'm speaking largely to the church tonight. I'm not speaking to secular culture. This is an in-house message for the church. I'm speaking to primarily Christ followers who are wanting to follow and obey Jesus. I'm not trying to put something onto our culture. Make sense so far? I'm gonna use language that, um, I'm gonna try and un avoid unhelpful language. We're not gonna use terms like affirming and non-affirming because it frames the conversation in a way that I don't think is fair. I'm gonna use language like the historical position and the progressive position to try as best I can, as generously as I can. And the first time I did this, I had someone come to me afterwards thinking that I was arguing for the progressive side. But I'm not actually, I'm, I'm arguing for the historical side, but I did it so fairly that they thought I was arguing for that side. So as best I can, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna use language that is charitable and fair, and I'm gonna try and be as objective as I can be. I'm going to, at times, use terms that are offensive, and it's not my intention. It's just because this is so loaded. There's so many, it's a bit of a minefield. And so please hear me in advance. If I do say something that is offensive in that way, it's not my intention. I really, I wanna say sorry upfront for that. And I hope tonight my pastor's heart comes through. In terms of understanding where we're going, a bit of a roadmap tonight, there's three parts of this talk. The first part, the first part of the talk is how did we get to this place we're in right now? How did our culture, our world, our society get to this moment we find ourselves in right now, number one? You're free to leave after that section. <laughs> part two, what does the Bible say? Now, if you stay for part two, you have to commit to stay for part three. So leave after part one, but not after part two. If you stay, after, if you stay through part two, you've gotta stay for part three. Does that, that's, just, that's one rule I wanna impose if that's okay. I'm gonna spend more time on section two and section three than I am gonna spend on section one. So if you're planning how long we're gonna be here, probably 85 minutes talking and we're about three minutes into that. Maybe 90 minutes. Number two is gonna be the least interesting for many of us in the room, but it's incredibly important. What are we doing in section number two? We're gonna look at the five biblical texts that speak about same-sex sexual practices. And we're gonna, as technically as we can, look at what is being said and what is not being said. Because we're not, I'm not trying to tell you what I think about this. I'm trying to stand here as a pastor and say, this is, with the best integrity in my heart, how I see the scriptures to be. And then we're gonna look in section number three, what does this mean in particular for those who are same-sex attracted? What we're gonna do in section two, we'll read the text, we'll look at the progressive view, and then we will look at the historical view, which is the view we hold as a church. It's very technical, 
Um, but the critical thing is that we come away from here with a sense of what the scriptures are saying and, and we unpack the Bible. Lastly, again, let me say, I'm speaking primarily to Christians. If you're here and you're not a, and you're not a Christian, this is primarily not addressed at you as much as you're welcome to stay and get a window into what it looks like to follow Christ in this aspect of our lives. Feel free to listen in. And so because I'm speaking to Christians, I'm gonna do something that we haven't done much in our church. I wanna read from the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm gonna read it first. And then at the end of my message, the last thing we do together is I'm hoping that we're gonna be able to read it together as a church. But the first time we start off, I'm gonna read it. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563. These were catechisms in order to help the church understand the truth. And uh, this is question number one out of 130 questions. Question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is my only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Extraordinary words. Okay, so point number one, how did we come to, to be here? Remember on Sunday, if you were here, I made five points just about half since the 1960s, our world has shifted so fast in the area of sexuality. And the third, um, the third aspect of that shift was how quickly and, and how our world has come to, to view um, sexuality as not male-female, but same-sex relationships as well. This has happened very suddenly in our society. And it's a, it's a cultural shift that's happened in our lifetime. Many of you guys would have been born into that, I realize that, but for most of us probably in the room, this has happened in our lifetime. It's happened incredibly fast. How fast? I mentioned on Sunday that in 2008, when Barack Obama, head of the Democratic, kind of the more liberal side of the US political system, ran for office, he ran in his campaign as against same-sex marriages. Now, I'm not studying this to say right or wrong, as much as I'm saying that was not that long ago. Maybe youngsters are going, 2008, that's forever. But it's not that long when I reflect. This has happened really, really quickly. And not just has it happened really, really quickly. Um, it's hard to kind of keep up pace with how this has happened. It's taken place really through the medium of war. What am I talking about? The language that has been used, the metaphors that have been used, the kind of hatred and the, uh, uh, and the words that have been used of those in the other camp, whichever side or whichever camp you're on, have been hostile and they've been aggressive and it's been violent language. And so this change has happened incredibly fast and it's happened in kind of violent, very aggressive, very polarizing ways. Um, that's what's happened. The sexual revolution has been about a power struggle. Someone, one sociologist, said, everything is about sex, except sex, which is about power. And, and that's certainly been true as to how this kind of revolution has happened. It's been violent, it's been warlike. What we're gonna do now is understand both sides. 
how is it that we came to be here in this moment? And let's look from the perspective of both sides. I'm not looking in a sense biblically yet, we'll get there number two. But just from a societal, from a, not from a religious perspective, just from the, a societal perspective. Let's look first at, 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 from the perspective of the side of those who said um, that, that same-sex marriages should be legalized. This is a justice issue and it has to be changed. And I'm gonna be speaking a lot out of American context because a lot of this has come to us via America. So here we go. In February 1988, a conference was held in the States of 175 leading gay activists. This conference was convened and they met to establish a mission that the gay movement would rally around. We're just talking about how our society came to be where we are. There was a shift in strategy to strategic propaganda and cultural engagement. Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen met, uh, they, they after this conference wrote a book. The book was called After the Ball. And the subtitle of the book is, um, We've got some slides for that one. The subtitle of the book is How America Will Conquer Its Fear of the Gays in the 90s. How America Will Conquer Its Fear of Gays in the 90s. That book, you can Google it on Amazon. It is out of print. Um, if you wanna buy a hard copy, you will pay 950 US dollars at the moment for it. In the book, they outline a three-prong strategy. Number one, to desensitize the American people to gay relationships. To jam opposition to gay relationships. And to convert popular opinion to normalcy and public acceptance. And the honest truth is it worked. Much of what we believe as a society today, this is my point on this side here, is not the logical progression or logical evolution of society, but much of what we believe and hold to as a culture is the result of a cleverly manufactured campaign of propaganda by world-class PR agents, end quote. Not my words, theirs. Part number one, to desensitize the American population to gay relationships. Quote, we need a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive way possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least get used to being wet. The main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think about homosexuality as just another thing, meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. I'm quoting from after the ball. I know the term homosexuality, or homosexual may be offensive to some, I'm quoting the book that was written in the 90s. Part two to jam those who oppose our movement. Violently, or by any means necessary, block any dissent to our movement. Tim Gill, who was an incredibly wealthy financial backer, he was just a really, really wealthy man who put mega sums of money behind these campaigns in the fight for gay liberty. He was quoted in an article by Rolling Stone magazine to say this, anyone who opposes us must be punished. We will punish the wicked. I just, what I'm trying to show us is we understand it happened quickly, but, but it happened in kind of warlike language. Both, you'll see both sides. It's aggro. It's, I mean, here there's a new righteousness being established. We must punish the wicked and a kind of moral superiority. Any opposition is to be crushed, to be punished, to be penalized and to be excluded from society, to use today's language, to be canceled in our culture from the public sphere. 
Part three, to convert popular opinion to normalcy and, and public acceptance. Lobbying, education, media, law, art, entertainment, family, business, and therapy all came under the weight of the campaign. The war on normalcy. Again, the language. The conversion of the average American's emotional, emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via media is our strategy quoting after the ball. The public should be persuaded gays are victims of circumstance, that they no more choose their sexual orientation than their height. For all practical purpose, purposes, gays should be considered to have been born gay, even though sexual orientation for most humans seems to be a product of a complex interaction between innate predispositions and environmental factors during childhood and early adolescence. To suggest in public that homosexuality might be chosen is to open the can of worms labeled moral choice and sin and give the religious right a stick to beat us with. Again, the war. First you get a foot in the door, quoting. First you get a foot in the door by being as similar as possible and then and only then with your one little difference, orientation, finally accepted. You can then start dragging in your peculiarities one by one. You hammer in the wedge, narrow and first as the saying goes. Allow the cabal's nose under your tent and the whole body will soon follow. A cultural vision of being gay is normal, therefore every behavior and practice of any sexual minority must be accepted as normal too. This was a planned strategic campaign by gay activists in every sector of society that was designed to bring us to where we are today. Andrew Sullivan himself, a gay man, albeit a conservative gay man, he wrote an article called Undoing Our Good Work, in which he asks the question, at what point do we stop and acknowledge that we won? How much further do we need to push this? Bottom line, when you look from the one side, it's been an incredibly effective campaign to transform society. And it's happened in polarizing, aggressive ways. If you look from the other side, you'll find the same thing in terms of the aggressive polarizing ways. At the same time, you have to look at the rise of the religious right in America too. We look at the other side of the culture war and seeing this happen, the kind of religious right of America kind of responded and they began to intentionally fight back as well. Jerry Falwell Sr. and others founded what's called the moral majority. And their vision was for a conservative agenda for society, for culture based on God's word, Essentially, they were trying to build a theocracy of the nation, responding to what they saw as immorality that was invading the righteousness of their nation. Some of the issues which the moral majority campaign included was the promotion of traditional um, vision of family life, the opposition to media outlets that promoted views that were anti-traditional family, the opposition to state recognition or acceptance of the homosexual acts, the prohibition of abortion, even in the cases of incest, rape, pregnancy, and where the life of the mother was at stake. Supporting Christian prayer in schools. Marketing to Jews and other non-Christians for conversion to conservative Christianity. Real mixed bag. This is the other side of the culture war. Quoting the moral majority. AIDS is not just punishment for homosexuals. It's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. The idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. Someone must not be afraid to say moral perversion is wrong. 
If we do not act now, homosexuals will own America. If you and I do not speak up now, this homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men, women, and children who get in its way, and the nation will pay a terrible price. You look at the intensity of this war rhetoric that is there. Tinky Winky is gay. The moral majority, I'm just quoting. You have to look at the comic, look, anyway, some. But, but basically what you see is you see a judgmentalism on a culture. It's just a sense of moral superiority. It's aggressive, it's warlike, it's polarizing, it's camp forming. And it just makes me feel, ah, and I've washed with somebody else's soap today already. <laughs> the New Testament doesn't take this kind of approach. You read 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12, we'll see it up here. This is Paul, this is how Paul engages. He says, for what, I, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not for those inside the church? Who, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? As Christians, we don't get to put our faith on secular society and judge others. Our judging should happen within the four walls of the church as we hold each other accountable to God's high standards. And we get into a lot of trouble when we take what God calls us to as believers and we put that on our culture, especially when we ooze judgmentalism as well. The church was unloving, I mean, generally speaking. I remember seeing banners, God hates homosexuals. Just terrible things that are deeply embarrassing to me as a Christ follower. And as a result, many people walked away from their Christian faith. The result of this kind of cultural war has been confusion, embarrassment, and exhaustion. And the bottom line is, culture wars produce casualties. And we are living in battlefields right now where many are filled with shrapnel. It's happened fast. It's been polarizing and it's been aggressive from both sides. It's been intentional, it didn't just happen. Which is why, end of part number one, you're free to leave now, but remember if you stay for part two, you gotta stay for part three. So if you're staying, buckle up. Which is why, when we come to the section now, what does the Bible teach about this? It helps to understand that very few of us come with neutrality to the scriptures. This is so warlike and there's so much hurt and there's so much pain, very few of us come without our own biases, our own wounds, our own hurts. You can see how with this backdrop, we all come with different pre presuppositions and predispositions to what the Bible and the teaching uh, of the scriptures is. Because of so much hurt and damage that's been done through this kind of religious right in a sense, a lot of people actually don't care what the scriptures teach anymore. And it's tempting to do this. It's tempting to start with our individual experience or the experience of a friend of ours, maybe a gay friend of ours, and then reason through our experiences what we think is a natural and loving response. And then critique the scriptures and critique the church and or, or, or we import that understanding that we've reasoned based on our experience or the experience of a friend, and we take that and then we reinterpret the scriptures in light of that thing. I get it. It's often done in a heart of love with a genuine cause for, for or genuine concern for individuals. I really get that. But you have to see the challenge with doing life and doing faith this way is it's incredibly subjective. 
It's not timeless. It's culture bound to this moment that you're asking these questions in right now. It's biased to our particular generation and our particular cultural moment. And it assumes arrogantly that everyone who's gone before is wrong because now we have all the answers. And so how should we do this? How do we do this as a church? The same, way, same reason we take 22 weeks in 2022 and preach through the book of James. What we do is we take the scriptures and we hold them up and as Christ follows, remember I'm speaking to us as the church, we bring our lives into alignment with the scriptures. How do we do this? We start by asking ourselves, what does the scriptures teach? We don't start with our experience, we start with the scriptures. And then we consider 2,000 years of church tradition and history. Understanding that the Holy Spirit hadn't abandoned 2,000 years worth of Christians and then suddenly appeared to speak to our generation of pastors. And then we add to that reason and we add to that our own experience as well. Yet we do that mindful of the pain that is involved in our moment in history as well. Never forgetting that Christ calls us to love others, even, even those whom we differ with. And so hopefully tonight, as best we can, we're gonna thread the needle between honoring the truth of the scriptures in a way that forms us as a church, in a way that's not offensive as well, and in a way that's most loving and helpful to all people. So it's an easy task we're gonna take on tonight. Okay, I said there's five key texts in the Bible we're gonna look at that speak to the subject. These, these scriptures speak to gay sexual practices. Right? This is not speaking to same-sex attraction. These are speaking to same-sex attraction followed through into gay sexual practices. We're gonna read them. And then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna articulate the progressive view in favor of um, or pro-gay marriage and yes, this should be accepted in the church. And then, then I'm gonna share the historical view, which is the view that we hold as a church. Now notice I'm using again, I'm gonna say the term gay sexual practices because there are some who are same-sex attracted who are not participating in gay sexual practices as well. Sure. Guys, we're gonna just get used to hearing these terms as well in church uh, as well. I know it's very different for many of us as well. And so again, I'm trying my best to not be offensive in the language that I'm using. Let's jump right into it. Genesis chapter two. You wanna follow along in your Bibles or follow along with me on the screen. Genesis chapter two, verse 18 to 25. This passage is speaking about sexuality, right? It's the story where the focus is on, as you'll see, as you've, if you've read the creation accounts, the focus is largely on complementary pairings. And what you're gonna see as we read this passage is look closely that when it comes to Adam, Adam cannot find a complementary partner that fits him. The, the narrative is constructed to the point where there's Adam and he's got no one with him. He's got, there's loads of complementary pairs throughout creation. I'll mention them a little later. But when it comes to Adam, there's no one that fits him. He cannot find his complementary partner in nature. And so God creates and brings her to him. Genesis 2 verse 18. And then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit, helper fit for him. We'll come back to those words in a second. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, it was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of all the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the place with its flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man was made into a woman and brought, and brought, her, and she, and, and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they will become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, as we said earlier in our origin series during lockdown, a year or two ago, it goes so quickly, this is not a science book but it is meant to be authoritative for how we live. The progressive view. The progressive view would say this. Adam, what Adam needed was not necessarily a woman. What Adam needed was a human partner. It was anyone who wasn't in nature. It was anyone who wasn't an animal. In other words, it was Eve's humanity that made her a suitable helper for Adam and not her gender. The logic goes then, that was because Adam was created heterosexual. Had Adam been created homosexual, then Eve wouldn't have been created woman. She would, he would, have, she would have been created man because that is the helper that Adam needed. Make sense? The historical view is, is Eve's humanity and humanness the only thing that qualified her as a suitable fit helper for Adam? And the answer is no. The passage makes it clear that her femaleness plays a role as well. The Hebrew word translated helper fit or suitable helper, another translation is the Hebrew word konegdo. Konegdo used here in verse 18 and verse 20, it's a compound word with two ideas, ke and neg. Ke and neg. Should we say that? Can we say that? Ke and neg. Okay, what we've got is ke meaning like, like. Neg meaning opposite or in front of. Like opposite, like opposite. It, it literally means like opposite and it captures why Eve is the perfect partner for Adam uh, because, because she's like him in that she's human. She's unlike everything else in creation. But she's also opposite, she's also different than him, not the same. If, if her humanness was just the point, the word care would have been sufficient. Is that rain? It's like the applause of heaven. <laughs> Not quite. Let's keep it humble here. Anyway, anyway, let's carry on. The word care, like, would have been sufficient. Are you able to hear me in the back there? Do I need to speak a bit louder in the back? Or is it cool? I'm gonna blast the poor guys on the internet if I talk any louder, but it's cool. You can hear me full. Um, okay. Where were we? If it was just the same, then like would have been sufficient. But the fact that if it was just humanness, but it wasn't enough, that it was negdo. We needed like, but opposite as well. She needed to be like him, but she also needed to be unlike him. It's this vision of complementarity that we see coming through here. Eve is human, she's not an animal, she's like him, but she's also unlike Adam as well in that she's female, she's negdo him as well. She's like, but she's opposite him. And this passage, um, it shows us as well a, a vision of Christian marriage as well. We see that there's three parts to a Christian marriage. Both partners need to be human. They need to be like each other. Both partners need to come from different families. That's important, right? And then number three, 
both partners need to display sexual difference. The neg do part, right? It's otherness of male and female. And female. And this is part of the complementarity that we see woven through the early chapters of Genesis as well. It's, it's just so there. You see this complementary design for flourishing. You see God and creation. You see light and dark, earth and heavens, day and night, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals, and that doesn't work. So the climax of creation Genesis 1.27 is man and female. The climax of this complementary dance is man and woman, together able to reflect the image of God. It's a vision of Christian sexuality that displays differences interacting together to display the glory of God. There is sameness and there is difference. And that's critical, Genesis chapter two. Leviticus 18. Oh, thank you. Nice and warm. I wasn't expecting that. Thank you. That is so good. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Leviticus 18, 22. We jump straight into the scriptures. Four more to go. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. What's the context here? The context is Israel is just coming out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They've been brainwashed, they've been programmed, they've they've been just told who they were as slaves and now they are broken free and God is leading them out into the wilderness, he's taking them towards the, the promised land where he is establishing his people. And and his people are to have a different ethical vision, a different way of being as a society, a way that reflects who God is. Because all the nations of the world would step back and look and see the people of God in the promised land. And they would look at him and they would to get a window into what God is like. He is establishing a people in his image, in his likeness. God through them is creating a different culture with a vision of holiness that they would display his character to the nations. And so holiness is in fact the central theme of the book of Leviticus. Holiness appears in fact 87 times in the book of Leviticus, 87 times. The word of me of holiness, if you're new to the church perhaps, it's to be separate, to be consecrated, to be distinct, to be like God in, 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 in that way. So much so that through the book of Leviticus, we see they are to be a holy people with holy clothes in a holy land using holy utensils, holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by holy laws so that they can be a kingdom of holy priests as a holy nation. It's clear, it's holiness so that the rest of the world would look and see what God's people look like. And then in in the book of in Leviticus, from chapter 17 onwards, we have what is written and called the Holiness Code. If you if you know the New Testament, maybe you know of Matthew, you know of the Sermon on the Mount. You have the Holiness Code in a similar way that is written in Leviticus from chapter 17 onwards. And in it, it details how God's people should live as holy in contrast to the people around them. Leviticus 19 verse two, sandwiched between 18 and 20, the two scriptures we read in 19.2, is you shall be holy for I, the Lord God, am holy. Now, the progressive view on this text is this. There's three arguments that these no longer apply to same-sex relationships today. 
The first one is the Old Testament passages are no longer informative for us around ethics and morality. That's Old Testament. We now live in the New Testament, and so those things no longer apply. Number two, that these, passage, these passages are referring to men who are being treated sexually like women, and in a very patriarchal, honor-shame culture, that's what was being condemned. It was men being treated like women sexually. See this? It, it's, a, it's a downward, it, it's what's being put forward here in a strong patriarchal, unashamed society, and that's what was being condemned. And then number three, that there's, actually what's being condemned here is exploitative, idolatrous sex, not loving, monogamous relationships. We are about 35, 40% through, guys, just so you know. Makes sense, those three things. The historical view would push back and say, no, no, just because we're under the new covenant, it doesn't mean that we throw the Old Testament laws away. Jesus, the rest of the New Testament, uh, Paul, they, they don't throw the Old Testament away. They seem to affirm these laws of holiness as well. There are parts about the, uh, in the Old Testament law about mixed cloth, about eating pork and shellfish and plowing fields and eat, cooking a young goat in its mother's milk that no longer apply today, which is incidentally why if you go to Israel, you will not have any dairy with your breakfast because you cannot cook a young goat in its mother's milk, by the way. Um, these parts of the Old Testament no longer apply to us. Why, is that, why does that not hold up? Sorry, I went down a rabbit hole. Um, I've been to Israel and it was a big shock to me that you couldn't have any dairy with your breakfast. Why is this? First point, not all Old Testament law is the same. Now, this is not a new idea recently that's been created. This has always been understood. There are three different kinds of Old Testament laws. Number one, the moral law. Moral law is true for all people in all places at all times because it reflects God's will. There are moral laws. Then there are ceremonial laws. Remember, Israel was under the sacrificial system. And as such, there were ceremonial laws um, that people had, it, uh, had to obey in order to participate in the sacrificial system before Christ came. And the third type of law is civil law. Israel was a theocracy. And so there was war, uh, there was law as a, uh, as a nation, as a theocracy as well, the nation of Israel. Now, Leviticus 18 to 20 form part of what is called the moral law. It's one block of teaching, as I said, like the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, the moral instructions speak about, among other things, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in a court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, turning to witches, and among others, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. We forget sometimes just how corrupt the world was that the scriptures were written into, how different, just how broken the world was that God intervened in, but that's what it was. The New Testament writers endorsed these morals. In fact, Jesus referred to Leviticus 19, 18, more, the, Leviticus 19, in between Leviticus 18 and 20, more than any other law in the Old Testament, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Both Peter and Paul quoted Leviticus as part of their summons to holiness. And so, yes, we're... We'll, we'll get to the others now. Because we're no longer under a theocracy, we're not trying to turn South Africa into Israel again. 
That's not what we're trying to do. God is not working through a theocracy anymore like he did at the time of Israel. God has now transcended all of that. He's working through all nations, with all governments, etc. at all times. We are no longer under the, the kind of civil laws. And because we're no longer under the sacrificial system, we're no longer under the ceremonial laws. But the moral laws reflect God's nature for all time. And those still hold. And so it's not a matter of just picking and choosing which laws you hold to. Actually, the moral laws are timeless. They're eternal and they always reflect who God is. And they are different than the ceremonial laws, eating pork, et cetera, et cetera, and the civil laws. Number two, the other two objections on this one, the second and third views in which, in which it's the feminization of the passive partner in the same sex um, relationship that's being condemned, remember? This doesn't make sense because in Genesis, unlike other uh, religions at the time or other creation accounts at the time, men and women are created equal. It's, it's, it's this, this thing of, oh no, it's the feminizing. That, that is not true. If you go back to, it would be a this way move. It wouldn't be a this way move if, that what, if that's what was going on. In fact, if you were to say, because the Bible has got an equal value in terms of men and women on sexuality, it can't be that, no, no, what's being condemned is men having the lower view of women in terms of sexual relationships. If you were to value sexual relationships, remember in the biblical times, uh, reproduction and filling the earth, having babies really, was a fundamental part to sexuality. You could probably argue that actually it's the woman's side who carries the baby. That's the, 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 it would be this, if anything, you know? So it can't be that, that no, 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 this is what's being condemned here. Sorry. The woman's part in sex and sexuality was not lesser than a man's in the biblical creation account is what I'm getting at. And the language in this passage is not coercive language. It's language of mutuality. It's, it, it's both parties being condemned as equal willing participants. It's not one dominating or exploiting another as in the third objection to this. This is mutuality here. In the Old Testament, when a woman was, uh, was victimized by a man, she who was innocent wasn't punished. He who was doing the victimizing was punished. Here, you see both parties are being punished. It wasn't predator and prey. It was two together in mutuality. Romans chapter one, let's cross over into the New Testament. Romans one, verse 24 to 27. Now the context of Romans chapter one is Romans chapter one is, comes before Romans chapter two and Romans chapter three. Just follow with me, this is important. Romans chapter one, two, and three, Paul is developing something together. Romans chapter one, Paul speaks about the sins of the Gentiles. Romans chapter two, Paul speaks about the sins of the Jews. Romans chapter three, he says, you see everyone, whether you're Gentile or Jew, is, has sinned and needs to come under the grace of Christ. Whether you're a Gentile, because these are the Gentile sins, whether you're a Jew, and these are the Jewish sins, everyone needs the grace of Christ. He's building a case for Gentiles, through their Gentile sin, through Jews, through their Jewish sin, that everyone has sinned, everyone has fallen short, and everyone needs grace from Christ. Everyone needs the cross. So Romans chapter three, everyone has sinned, all of us need Jesus. How do I know that? Because you Jewish guys, you've sinned, and this is what your sin looks like, and you Gentiles, you sinned, and this is what your sin looks like. You see, you see it's important that we follow this, this, this flow of argument. And so, so Paul, working back then to chapter one, is we're looking at the Gentile sin because he ultimately wants to show how everyone needs Christ. 
And so that's what happens in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. He's summing up the sins of, sins of the Gentiles. Romans chapter 2, the sins of the Jews. And then he says, therefore, everyone needs Christ. So whether it be porn or whether it be pride, everyone needs Jesus. And Paul is now, now we go, okay, everyone needs Jesus. We all need grace. All of us are broken. The Jews are broken. Here's the Gentile brokenness. And Paul double clicks on Gentile brokenness and Gentile sinfulness. And you see in here three movements that he mentions over here in unpacking the Gentile sort of sensuality and Gentile sexuality and their understanding. Three things that you'll see here. Number one, the valuing of creation and the denial of creator. Creation is elevated above creator. The substitution of God for the priority of self. Self over God. And then lastly, when you do that, the unnatural becomes natural. Romans 1 verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the penalty due for their error. The context is he's speaking about gentle sinfulness so that he can build to the point of all of us need forgiveness in Christ. The two questions we need to look at here is, is the desire that's driving this kind of sexual um, the sexual practice, natural or unnatural? And what is the nature of these kinds of sexual relationships? Now, in the progressive view, there's two responses to the above. That this is, this is about heterosexual excess. This is about heterosexual excess. In other words, these people had sexual appetites that had so got out of control, and it's like they had that overflowed beyond, these men had overflowed beyond every woman who they should have been attracted to and now they needed something different to just fuel this out of bounds sexuality. Their lust was so excessive, they needed something different to satisfy them. And in other words, it's unnatural because they were heterosexuals engaging in homosexual sexual practices. Had they been homosexuals, it wouldn't have been unnatural. It was the excessive lust that made it um, wrong. And then the second objection is that the kind of sex that is happening is exploitative by nature. It's masters and slaves, it's prostitutes and call boys. And the, prob the thing that's being condemned here is the weird power dynamic. It's coercive, it's not about loving monogamous relationships like we see today. Paul is not against same-sex love, but against the abuse of power and the commodification of people. Make sense? We've got to keep moving anyway. So the historical view. No, you, I can see you getting it. The historical view. The sin is against, uh, the sin against nature is sin in, because of the way in which things are designed in Genesis. It's not heterosexual excesses that's being condemned, but it's against nature because of design in Genesis. It's, it's about not living according to the design that, that God has given us. This passage echoes back to Genesis 1 and 2 for God's design. Think of the language about creator and creation, the creator of the world, male and female, both being distinguished because Paul is 
what is the word? Hearkening is, is calling back to original design. It seems Paul is not speaking against heterosexual excess, but he's calling in the language from Genesis of design that he's appealing to to make his uh, call out here. And then the second one is the emphasis on exchange makes it clear that Paul is thinking of homosexual activity in general and not a kind of bad homosexuality. It's true, there was much of that in the day. There was, there was, there was lots of man-boy relationships um, that was very prominent in the ancient world. But Paul condemns, in this passage we read, it was woman as well. There is no record in the ancient world, in terms of ancient literature, of the same kind of exploitative woman-to-woman relationship. Only it, ex- it only exists with men. And so Paul's critique here of male-female same-sex relationships is not tied to a power dynamic, Maybe you could have said that if it was just speaking about men, but the fact that Paul speaks to men and women, and there is no record in the ancient world of there being any kind of power dynamic in, uh, in women, uh, means that Paul is speaking to something that's beyond that. It also says that those who were involved were committing these acts with one another. They burnt with passion for one another. And so this is not coercive, exploitative. This is mutual, consensual same-sex acts. It's clear in this text that Paul, for Paul, gender is the issue, not orientation, as in the first instance, or domination or exploitation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, and 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 to 12. We're nearly there, guys. I know this is hard, and I know this is technical. For some of you, love this. For others of you, you're going, oh, this is hard. It's hard also because because yes, we wanna be faithful and I'm trying as best I can to be objective and kind of technical in the words. But we know that behind all of these words are people and desires and genuine parts of people. And so it is, I feel the tension as well. 1 Corinthians 6 verse nine to 11. We have to though understand what the scriptures teach. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Let me just focus on one aspect. The greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Timothy 1 verse 8 to 11. And now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, but for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, for liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which we have been entrusted. Paul is writing primarily, both times Paul is writing, he's writing first to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians and then to the church in Ephesus to Timothy who is leading there. And the word that's translated here in your Bibles has got men who have sex with men or men who practice homosexuality. It's a very difficult word to translate because it's found almost nowhere else in ancient literature. In fact, many people believe that Paul actually coined this word, that he made it up 
because it doesn't exist anywhere else. The words that are being referenced in this text, there's two here. Malakoi, which means soft, often translated as effeminate, and arson koitai, arson koitai, which means betters of men. In the progressive view, there's, there's two things you have to look at. The language is unclear, so we can't be sure what is being addressed. Is it committed same-sex monogamous relationships, or is it exploitative sex? It's a compound word which complicates the understanding, and so we can't really have confidence that Paul is condemning what we are talking about in modern society today. Therefore, he's probably speaking of exploitative relationships. It's probably callboys and prostitutes. Some scholars say that the malakoi are the callboys who sell themselves to other men who are the arson koitai, um, and they hire out the malakoi. Others say that 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 is referring to pederasty. Now, pederasty is a, is a, a Greco-Roman cultural uh, practice where, where older men would take advantage of younger men. It wasn't um, pedophilia with, with younger children. It was kind of teenage boys. And it was part of this, collab, this, this elaborate sort of scheme of becoming a man. And it was very complicated. It was, it was very known in that age um, as well. And so, no, no, Paul is not condemning same-sex monogamous relationships like today, but this system of pederasty that was pre- prevalent in the day. In other words, the language is unclear, therefore it can't refer to what we know as today, monogamous, loving, consensual relationships. The historical view, the language is not unclear. The language is compellingly and clearly taken from the Old Testament. The Greek translation called the Septuagint. So we had the Old Testament, and then that Old Testament was translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, which Paul read and Paul worked from. Okay, so the Greek translation that Paul worked from, he was a, himself a Jewish scholar before he, came, before he came to Christ. The Greek translation that was used by Paul of Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 22. In Leviticus 18, the Greek word that we read there is arsenos and koitan. Paul, who was a popular Jewish scholar, was drawing from the Greek words of the Greek version of the Old Testament, and he coined a new phrase called arsenos koitan or arson koitai. This is what Paul, it's, it, it's not unclear. That's what Paul was drawing from Leviticus in creating this word. Additionally, if it was about power relationships, then why wouldn't Paul say that? Because there are plenty words used by Christians, Jews, Greeks, and other pagans that refer to the system of pederasty. Paul didn't use them. He created a word that he drew from the Greek translation of Leviticus to bring through into the New Testament, um, arson koitai. Malakoi refers to men who receive sex and, and, and arson koitai refers to men having sex with them. Paul says it's inappropriate for the people of God. One more. You've done so well, guys. I know this is hard. It's very technical. It is very technical. But, we, we, but I, I, I can't stand here and, try, and tell you what I think. We've got to look at the scriptures. Matthew 19, the last one, and this is the shortest one. We read it on Sunday so we can go super quick. Matthew 19, verse three to 12, we read this on Sunday. It's true, the primary context of this is marriage and divorce. But what we also saw on Sunday is that when Jesus was asked the question about divorce and remarriage, 
Jesus took the, took the question as an opportunity to kind of uh, reboot the worldview of, of Christian sexuality, if you will. He took that question to, 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 to look at the bigger subject of human sexual relationships and biblical sexuality. So let's read Matthew 19, verse 3 to verse 12 to, together. And the Pharisees came to him and they tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then does Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. We'll talk about that in two weeks time. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. It's clear Jesus ties theological arguments about human sexuality back to Genesis. He refers to in the beginning, beginning, in the beginning. For Jesus, marriage is a lifelong union which is blessed by God. It is between a man and a woman and it has been this way from the beginning. Jesus defines marriage as male and female. As I said, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here. You've been exceptionally outstanding in making it through all of this. I know for some of you, this is great. For others of you, this has been very hard. And, and please let me say again, I feel this as well, because yes, we've gotta be faithful to the nuance of the, the word, but these words ring in our ears because we know behind all of these words, these touch on the, the very, so, something so fundamental to people, to ourselves in this room and to people whom we know and love. Okay, you made it through section two. Now you're committed to being here for section three. It's important that we did what we've just done because as followers of Jesus, we need to know what the Bible teaches. So where does this leave us? And in particular, where does this leave those of us who are same-sex attracted? Perhaps that's you, perhaps that's a loved one or a friend of yours. Where does this leave so many who are desperate to follow Jesus? So section three is really just pastoral questions. They're of random length in my answer, um, but they're just things that I thought we need to speak through. So let's jump straight into it. Number one, are people born gay? I'm just a pastor, so the American Psychological Association, I'll quote them. There is no consensus among scientists as to the exact reason an individual develops heterosexual, gay, lesbian, or bisexual orientation. Much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, social, cultural influences on sexual orientation. No findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think both nature and nurture play complex roles and many people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. The answer from the experts seems to be 
I'm not sure. Which means as a church, we should treat people with exceptional compassion. And we can't kind of prejudge people and come with our answer because we've oversimplified and we know what's causing. It just doesn't help. However, just because someone has a biological disposition or a desire, it doesn't justify that thing as supremely correct either. We all have inborn desires, some of which are very strong that we shouldn't act on as well. And so just because something feels very natural doesn't make it justified either. Is orientation sinful? I don't think so. When your orientation turns into lust, whether it be for men or for women, then yes. James, in the, in the book of James we're working through, says there is, a, there is a desire that leads to sin. There's a desire, but it can lead to sin. It need not necessarily, but it can lead to sin. There is desire that becomes sin at a particular point, and I think it's when we collaborate enough with that desire, and instead of choosing to follow Christ, I collaborate with that desire. Whichever way your orientation leads you, that's when you've crossed the line. Can people change their orientation? It's so complex. And I, th I just think it's unwise to make any form of general rule here. Certainly for some who would have called themselves exclusively same-sex attracted, they have been able to marry the someone from the opposite sex, have children, many of them. Um, th they, some of them would say in, as well that I'm not attracted to all men, but to that one man I am, and that's enough. Certainly for some. Certainly for others, this is not the case. There are many Christians who are same-sex attracted, and they just could not bring themselves to a heterosexual relationship. It just, it's just too far, and so choose to live celibate lives. I, I, I spoke to you of Sam Albury, outstanding, outstanding human being. I mean, I, I've read him on, on this, but but on, on gospel, on gospel culture, on church, on church leadership. He's a pastor out of, I think it's Emmanuel Church in the States where he's with Ray Ortland. I learned so much from him as he is a pastor and he counsels and speaks about creating gospel culture in a church. That guy would walk onto our eldership team as a church. I would serve on his eldership team any day. Sorry, I'm pointing to South Penn. I'm not gonna say that. <laughs> Donnie, Donnie nods though. That, that's why I went there. What do we say to those who say, but God made me this way? I think I, I say yes and no. Yes, God made you. And yes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single human being is made by God and is in the image of God and is just fearfully and wonderfully made. However, Yes and no. We believe that no human being is perfect. So too, every human being has been bent out of shape by sin. Sin is not just something that we do, but ever since the fall took place in the Garden of Eden, something infiltrated our humanity. We became sinful, not just that we do sinful things, but our bent, we are bent out of shape. We are formed in ways that we were not intended in God's original design. 
And so sin shapes our desires and our longings and even our physical bodies. Speaking of myself and true of you as well, in the fall in Eden, it means that every, every cell in my body, if you will, carries both the image of God as well as the influence of sin. There is a virus in our system that influences every part of our being. Every single one of us has got our orientation distorted by sin. Every single human being has an orientation that has been distorted by sin. Created, Luke, that's me, created to love one woman selflessly my whole life. My orientation is broken. It's prone to wonder at times. My sexuality is curved in on myself. At times I become a selfish lover rather than a selfless one. Meaning, meaning at times I, I, I lust more for Lauren than I long for her in a selfless way. At times I'm drawn to other women besides my wife. All of our orientations are out of whack. We just don't talk about this stuff enough, you know? This is real. This is what it means to be human. And so, so yes and no. I think the last question, but it's also the longest answer, so don't. But then are you asking me to go against who I am? You're asking me to go against who I really am. Maybe, maybe for some of us to say, the most authentic version of who I am. And again, I'm gonna say yes and no. And I think this is where our, our culture does us a tremendous disservice. The message in our culture is that um, Anyone who experiences same-sex desires has discovered their truest, most authentic self. That to deny that is to be self-loathing of your truest self. Your most, it's, it's your most authentic, most authentic self and you must be true to who you are. And this script is played out in countless movies in Hollywood and films and novels and songs and TV shows. As if your sexuality is the deepest part of your being. I wanna say it's not. You are much more than your sexuality. I am more than a heterosexual. I'm a human being. There's so much more to my humanness. My sexuality is not the most fundamental part of my identity. It is a subpart of who I am as a human being and, and, and it is even a temporary subpart at that. Let me explain. Well, I will in a second, but you need a greater identity than your sexuality. For most generations of human beings, before our generation here, we found our identity in different ways than what you and I do. We found our identity and we found our meaning because we believed a different story. We used to believe, as most generations, that there was a God, that He created me, that I had an identity because He created me, that He put me into a community, and it's a community in which I belong to. I'm in a web of relationships, and I matter to other people, and other people matter to me, and so I have an identity in God, and an identity in other people, and I have meaning in my life that is not just found within myself. It's found in relation to God, and it's found in relation to other people. So I have meaning in my life, and I have an identity that I live out. My identity is received from God, and it's received from other people. It's not something I came up with inside of myself. However, in recent generations, many in our culture have rejected this. We've rejected God, and we've rejected other people. We've rejected community in favor of the individualistic life. 
where I look inside myself to find what it, what it is that's gonna make me happy and then I do what makes me happy. And so I lost God and I lost other people and I discovered myself. And what we discovered is there's a deficit of meaning in a life that revolves around me and is inward and generated my identity within myself. And because sex and sexuality is so strong and there's such strong forces in our, in our lives, when we look within ourselves to find an identity, it's no surprise that we look to our sexuality because it is so strong and it is so part of who we are. And so it's tempting to form an identity based on your sexuality, but I wanna put to you, it's too small a thing. You are so much more than your sexuality. And more than that, it's problematic in a few ways. I'll tell you just two of them. To make a primary identity on your sexuality is problematic in a, two, in, in a few ways. Here's two. Number one, when we do that, we fail to recognize that our orientation is more fluid than we think. Many people experience changes in their orientation over time. One researcher, Lisa Diamond, who herself identifies as lesbian with the American Psychological Association, she discovered to her own great surprise that sexual feelings are not fixed. Quoting her, people with exclusive, unchanging, same-sex eroticism are actually the exception and not the norm. Second reason it's problematic is because categories of homosexuality and heterosexuality are not as rigid as everyone says. And when we talk about it like it's either this or it's this, this is a spectrum. We tend to think of these rigid categories. So someone must be 100% here or 100% here. Diamond found out that around 14% of women and 7% of men reported experiencing same-sex attraction but that less than 2% of men and less than 1% of women were exclusively same-sex attracted. So it's a heck of a lot more blurry and gray is what the research is telling us here. Among those who identify as homosexual, 40% of men and 48% of women reported sexual attraction to the opposite sex in the previous year. Among those who identify as heterosexual, 25% of men and 50% of women reported having at least some same-sex attraction in the previous year. Shouldn't surprise us, and I'll tell you why in a second. But after years of study, Diamond has concluded that when we categorize people into either gay or straight, quoting her, we are in fact cutting nature at its joints. We are kind of imposing some joints in a very messy phenomenon. I'm just trying to say that if you're gonna hedge your whole identity on an orientation, you're building it on something that's far more squishy and less rigid and unstable than what, you'd, what our culture would lead you to believe. You need something that's deeper than that. And so in other words, it's far too fluid. We're asking the question, it's far too fluid a category to build your identity on. We're asking the question, but are you asking me to go against who I am? And I'm saying, in some ways I'm saying no, because who you are is far more fluid than you realize that. There's a, and I'm saying you're more than just your sexuality, but also yes to. Because every Christian is called to sexual restraint. To be a Christian is to deny a part of ourselves. Many parts, in fact. Gay or straight, we all place limitations on our sexuality and our sexual desire. To be a follower of Christ has always meant denying ourselves. And 
the open brackets comma here is, yes, choosing a life of celibacy is giving up a whole lot more than a lot of straight people ever have to. I, I 100% acknowledge that. But denying ourselves in order to pursue a godly sexuality is part of being a Christian for everyone. When I married Lauren, I limited my sexual, I took every other human being on the planet off the menu for her. We limit, our, and we find life in limiting ourselves as well. What else would I say here? I'd say Mark 10 verse 28 to 30. Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. To be a Christian is to leave, to, to leave things behind. I was chatting earlier about a pastor, the, my first pastor I ever had, a man named Dave Templeton. He came from Weinberg and he led a Presbyterian church in East London. I'll never forget one day he said, if you think you're following Jesus and it hasn't cost you anything, you're just taking a walk. You're not following Jesus. See, we've left everything and followed you, Jesus said. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, I'd say, or boyfriend or for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. To be a follower of Jesus is to deny yourself. I mean, in you, living your best life now in whatever Christian world that is, you miss that. But yet Jesus promises, and please hear me, Jesus promises to those who have laid down things in favor of following him, we will be rewarded for what we lay down in him. And I don't think it only means when we get to heaven. That passage says to me, in this life, we will be rewarded. How is it that if you lay down mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and potential lovers, you will gain in this life now back? I think the answer is the church. It has to be the church. It has to be in some way the church. The church is meant to be a place of fulfilling community, of deep, of rich, of meaningful relationships. The kind of place where you can embed your life and know that you, you belong, that your life matters, that your life is enriched because of friendships, of relationships that matter and add meaning to your life. The church is called to be a place, a place where those who have laid down that side of their lives because of and chosen to be celibate in followership of Jesus find that they recover so much in the way of love because of what they experience in our community. That's the weight that sits on us as a church. The church has gotta become the kind of life-giving community that gives back life to those who have laid down that part of their lives. To those who are choosing to follow Christ with their sexuality, a biblical community should help those with same-sex attraction live 
rich, full, abundant lives like Christ has promised because of the way in which we are so connected to you. We're not so caught up in our little five nuclear family or four nuclear family lives with our sports games and all of our things that we, we actually lose sight of all the people who we do life with in our communities. That God has called us to a web of relationships that matter so much that those who have laid down so much find me. I, I saw a tweet, a tweet the other day. It sounds so trite when you say tweet. There was a, there was a man who was same-sex attracted and, and, and part of a life group and choosing to live a celibate life who was just made the godfather, the, 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 what's the word? It's a godfather, hey, you godparent of his sixth child in his life group. Six kids. Who's, who's he watching on the sports field? Who's he like looking at? You're like, like, that's the church. In our overly sexualized culture, it's easy to forget that the Bible is not against same-sex relationships. In our overly sexualized culture, it's easy to forget that the Bible is not against same-sex relationships. The Bible commands same-sex relationships. I'm not saying it wrong. At a level of intimacy that, that Christians seldom ever reach in our society. I'm talking about biblical friendships, not same-sex sexual relationships but same-sex relationships, that a level of intimacy that adds so much meaning to life, perhaps a higher, maybe, maybe, maybe in, in some of the blurriness of those percentages of, of those who are kind of heterosexual but felt at times homosexual, maybe something of that blurriness there is because of the lack of genuine same-sex friendships in our lives in a culture that is so sex-charged that, that we think what we long for is that when in fact actually it's this glorious horizontal friendship between two men or two ladies that is beautiful that we just no longer have in our individualistic curved in on ourselves lives. Jesus said it in John 15, verse 13, he said, greater love is no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. What if culture has just gone so far sexualized, whatever that means, you know what I mean, that we've just overlooked the beauty and wonder of genuine friendship and we don't even know how to do it anymore in a biblical framework friendship is not the consolation prize for those who fail to gain romantic love whether that be because you're same-sex attracted or because you just the way life worked out you never met the guy or you never met the lady biblical friendship is supposed to be where it's at man The reality is that marriage is, temp is a temporary reality on earth as well. We ask, we ask, it's a long answer to a question. I'm asking, I'm asking you to deny myself. The reality is marriage is a temporary reality here on earth. Heaven is a place where there is no marriage. And so orientation is not an eternal factor to who you are. 
Luke chapter 20, verse 35, the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Hear what I'm saying is the longest, most significant part of your existence as a follower of Jesus is with Christ in your resurrection body. It, the, the length of time that you will live with Jesus as a follower of Jesus will so, in heaven, in your resurrection body, sorry, will so dwarf in length and size and magnitude this little life that you're living now with your orientation with the potential of marriage. So that's awkward for everybody here. It's just, it's so small, relative to something so great. And your primary union is not with your husband or your wife. Your primary union is with Christ eternally. The Bible teaches you so much more than your orientation. You're in the image of God. You're a child of God. The most important part of your being is not your orientation, your sexuality now. It's you've been redeemed for eternity as a child of God. You have an identity in Christ that supersedes and transcends your sexuality. Just yesterday, a friend of mine confessed. She's a divorcee, been divorced for five years, hasn't dated anyone for five years. She confesses to me, she says, Luke, last year, I, um, I, I got involved in a relationship with someone. And um, it wasn't just Luke, it was a group of us. But, and you guys don't know about this, but um, I was lonely and he was lovely and things got steamy. And it got sexy. She's a follower of Jesus. And it was so great. And she, said, and she actually said this, she said, I actually, I actually, it's been so long and I've been so devoted and I've been just working so hard as a mom that I just said to Jesus, I just said, God, I know this is not right, but I'm just doing it because I... Six weeks then she ended it. Here's her words. She said, I ended it because it's just, it's, it's not true to who I really am. It was, she said, in doing this thing that in the moment felt so right, there was this other note that was deeper and truer and stronger that simultaneously, that meant that after six weeks, no counsel from my pastor or my friends or anybody, this was hidden. I just, I had to say to him, I'm so sorry, we have to call this off because I feel I'm just going against who I am. And he was a nice guy and man, I miss him. But, but this is more who I am. I'm saying to you, I'm asking you to deny a part of who you are. Yes and no, but, but it, I'm saying by embracing this in this life now, embracing a same-sex relationship as a child of God, same-sex sexual relationship, sorry, as a child of God, you're in fact denying a more fundamental part of your identity, your eternal, not bound to this life self, but who God has created you to be for so long. And although it doesn't feel like it sometimes at the time, at a deeper level, you're embracing your ultimate identity as a follower of God, which also leads to deep joy and incredible meaning and satisfaction in your life as well. We must land because it is nine o'clock. 
Jesus, as a church, Jesus holds the tension between conviction and compassion. We must walk the tightrope and resist the pull to go either side. As a community, we need to be a safe place for those with same-sex attraction. I think of Jesus when he dealt with the, 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 the woman who she'd been caught in adultery, that religious people brought her to him. He was supposed to take her out. And what did he say to her? He dealt with all her condemners and he looked at her and he said, woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It's that tightrope between love and at the same time truth. It's, it's, we don't get to water down and think we're loving. At the same time, it's, it's that. That's the, rope, that's the place that Jesus has called us to walk. What would I say to you if you were here and you were gay or you're watching this, you're same-sex attracted? I would love to say to you that this church, although I know no church is perfect, and Constantia, but you guys are lovely. <laughs> no church is perfect, but, but this is a place full of broken people whose sexuality has for all of us been bent out of shape through the fall, who are learning humbly to learn to live in the ways of Jesus, who are in a culture where everything is sexualized and everything is individualized, who are learning to find meaning in community, to die to themselves and to live and love other people's, other people, would you come and join us? As you lay down a tremendous amount, I understand that but I trust you can see that you gain so much more. And the other thing I would say is if you've been hurt by the church because the church has got this wrong and we've erred in the past on sides of judgmentalism and just hatred and ugliness, I wanna say don't allow the sin of others to rob you of the most incredible experience of relationships and community that I think exists on the planet. That's the church. Now we won't be perfect, heck, I was speaking about six months ago and someone, I said something in the pulpit that was just so hurtful to somebody sexually and, 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 and he, he called me on it. He said, when you said this, did you really mean that? I said to him, I, I didn't mean that, but I can see how you, how you heard that and I'm so sorry. And because his identity wasn't just in his sexuality, it was in him being a child of God, part of this family, he said, I forgive you. We're all learning to do this together. And so would you forgive others and don't allow that past experience of someone else's wrong to rob you of the most beautiful experience. And the last thing, what would I say to us as Constantiaburg Church? I said, can you feel the weight of what it means to hold to these biblical lines and the call to be the kind of community that absolutely does not exist anywhere else in the world. That for some of us, we've got to get over our homophobic fears. We've got to, because Jesus has called us to love people who are genuinely battling with some, seri some serious things. And we've got to get over that stuff. And we've got to learn to love people beyond our own little lives. And to become the kind of community where someone could lay down such a significant part of their life and gain more in relationship. That's what being part of a life group, that's what's being part of a church. Last, last thing. I know I said that already, hey. Two more things. Before we, before we read, before we read, the, before we read the, uh, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, article number one. One last, last word, 1 Corinthians 6. 
Remember that passage we read there? We read, we focused, we focused on there. Uh, there's something else I wanna focus in on here. 1 Corinthians 6, where all of those things were listed. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In other words, Paul is saying, the church that we read about, that we follow, that we learn from, was made up of some people who were same-sex attracted, were in same-sex relationships, who came to Christ, who lived a different life, and they are the people who turned the world upside down, in whom we are living, in a sense, in the legacy of now, today. Let's stand together. Can we read Heidelberg Catechism? And then can I pray for us? Or Donnie, pray for us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're about to read this here. But let me just say, guys, I, I realize tonight has been heavy. It's, it's one guy talking about stuff from the Bible. It's very principle-based. However, these principles get worked out in the lives of people which are far more complicated and, you know, complicated than principles. And so if, if you're hearing this and you're wondering, what does this mean for me? What do I do with this? Please don't just get pastored by a principle and a microphone. We are people who pastor people. And here's Donnie and there's Colin and there's, I, I see class in the back there too and Meg. There are pastors in this community to work this out in your life. So please, I'm inviting you to come and speak to a pastor and work this out. Put up your hand if you're brave enough to say, hey, this is not, not here in this meeting, but by, by, by getting hold of one of these people and saying, hey, that was, I, I get that, that, there was a lot that was helpful. There was maybe some that wasn't. Can you help me work this out in my life? That's the kind of community we are. We don't just pastor principles. We work this out as people and we do that in pastoral ways as well. Can we stand together and read together from Heidelberg Catechism 1563, this was written. What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death. Jesus Christ. So watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. I belong to him. Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly and willingly Amen. I pray for us. Father, let's pray first just for those who, hey, this is your life. You'd say, yeah, I'm somewhere between homosexuality and heterosexuality. I'm on that spectrum. I lean more that way. Or, or maybe there's someone in your family, a child, a close friend, a spouse, you know, someone close to you. I wanna pray, Jesus, that, 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 that for your nearness, Jesus, for your nearness. In our brokenness, you through the incarnation proved once and for all that you moved towards us in our brokenness and not away from us and turning your back. I pray 
that you would experience Jesus moving towards you pastorally, as much as we've unpacked principles, pastorally in walking towards you, that, that you would experience his leadership as you work this out. I pray that you would see in Jesus that he is not this distant, uncaring, principle-giving God, but he is the creator God who rolled up his sleeves, became a human being, who got dusty, who got dirty, who lived celibate, who died on a cross because he wants to redeem your life. Not just give you the short-term best life now, but to redeem your eternity in ways that you cannot even begin to fathom. I pray you would see his heart for you. And he, he stepped into your world. And he wants to pastor you from this place. And I wanna pray for us as a church. Jesus, would we be the kind of church for whom those who would lay down such significant parts of their lives would find that they gain so much in terms of rich relationship through this community? Would you help us, Lord, to get over ourselves and our individualistic pursuits that the kind of friendships that you spoke of, that our greater loves would become commonplace in this body. That in a world who is starved of relationship and starved of meaning, that this community would become a place where people belong and are celebrated and are loved and live rich, full lives, whether they find a partner or not, Lord Jesus. Whether they, they choose to remain celibate, Lord Jesus that they would find in this community meaning, adventure, purpose, gospel mission, Lord Jesus. We ask that in your name, Christ. Amen.